Well, good morning. My name is Paul Winger. Um, I'm an elder here at the church, um, part of the leadership team, and very occasionally do I get the opportunity to preach. And uh, so I have that opportunity today. So this morning we're going to continue through a sermon series I've titled Realizing the Promises of God. It's a walk through a historical book of Joshua. And uh, this is part five in a sermon series through the book of Joshua. What I like about Joshua is the fact that it's a book of true historical events. No parables, no visions, true events in which God did something amazing. And today we're going to look at an event that is recorded in the book of Joshua in chapter 6. It's an event in which Israel undertook a military siege of the city, a small city called Jericho. So yeah, we're going to talk about the fall of Jericho. And part of the challenge of talking about this kind of event is that many of you already know this story. Uh, Sunday school curriculum, VBS curriculum, junior church curriculum has done a fantastic job over the last many, many generations, even in this church, of teaching about the fall of Jericho. And for a moment, I want you to throw all that out the door. (laughs) Um, Maybe some of you even know that catchy song, uh, Jericho fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho. Some of you know that song? I'm not a big fan of the song. I I used to be until this week I actually read the lyrics of the song. And uh, what it doesn't mention in the song, the lyrics don't actually talk about the main actor in this story. Oh, it it talks about um, Joshua fighting a battle. And that's not exactly true. The lyrics talk about the fact that the sound of the trumpets made the walls fall. And that's not (laughs) exactly true. It kind of leaves God out of the story, and certainly the song doesn't mention anything about the fact that the city was actually devoted to God as first fruits. And maybe you caught that in the video that we just watched, that Israel was asked not to plunder the city of Jericho. No plundering. And so this is a story of 27 verses, and we've done a good job of missing the point, I think. And so preparing the sermon has been very instructive for me, and hopefully over the next 20 minutes, 30 minutes, will, uh, it'll be more uh, illuminating for you as we unfold it. Uh, first things first, though, what do we know? What do we know about Jericho? You can type it into Google. I did it. And you can even visit it. It exists today. Although there are Canadian travel advisories for that part of the world. Maybe we can put up the map there now, Jordan. It's, uh, it's in the heart of the West Bank. Uh, difficult to see here. You can see this little, uh, uh, right about, right about there. That's Jericho uh, in, the, in the yellow spot. It's about five miles north of the Dead Sea. It's about, uh, what else? It's about five miles uh, west of, um, of the Jordan River, and it's about 17 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem. Um, you can notice the Sea of, uh, uh, the sea of Galilee, that, 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 uh, that blue lake up in the north. It's uh, now called the Sea of uh, Tiberias, or the Lake of Tiberias, but back, back in Jesus' time it was called the Sea of Galilee. And then down to the south you can actually see the Dead Sea. Um, this, this town still exists today, you can visit it. There's about 18,000 people living there. And uh, you, you know some people who've gone to Jericho. Has anybody here been to Jericho? Okay, Cheryl raised her hand. Um, sometimes if you don't get a chance to visit a place, you can live vicariously through the people who do visit these places. None of you went to Jamaica this month, 
but uh, but the Hancocks did. And if you followed them on, on, on Facebook, you got to see all the pictures and you got to experience Jamaica through them. Uh, Cheryl's been to Jericho. Pastor Steve's been to Jericho. You can talk to them about it. And it turns out Jesus uh, went to Jericho as well. Um, in, uh, in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18, we hear and read a story about Jesus healing a man called Bartimaeus. And he healed his blind eyes. Jesus went to Jericho. Um, there's also a famous sycamore fig tree in Jericho. And uh, there's a story uh, 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 in, the, in your New Testament. I'm going to look at the children. Do you know a story in the New Testament about a, about a man who climbed a sycamore fig tree? Remember the name of the man? Zacchaeus, right, right, absolutely. So the story of Zacchaeus actually took place in Jericho. If you go to Jericho today, they grow sycamore fig trees as a tourist attraction, and they point to them and say, that's the tree that Zacchaeus climbed. <laughs> I've never seen a 2,000-year-old tree, but, <laughs> but they, still, they have them there. Why wouldn't you grow them <laughs> as a tourist attraction? Um, what else do we know? We know that the parable of the Good Samaritan took place on that road between Jerusalem and and Jericho. It's about a 17-mile road. <coughs> That's the story that Jesus used as a teaching parable about the Good Samaritan. And a man is traveling on that road and he meets a band of robbers. But what about 1300 BC? So before Jesus, 1300 to 1400 BC, what did Jericho look like then? It was a mighty Canaanite fortress. Uh, recall what Brother Steve shared last week. Uh, we were talking, and he was preaching about how Nehemiah built the walls around Jerusalem. Um, cities needed walls back then. That's kind of a radical concept for us now. We would never think that a St. John's would need walls around it. Uh, we live in a country where we have peace, order, and good government. We have diplomacy and democracy. We don't need to put walls around cities. But back then, you did. Otherwise, bands of robbers would travel through and attack the cities. So it was a fortress. Uh, archaeologists think uh, they have an idea of what it looked like, and we even have a, th a little animation that we'll show you here. So it was a double-walled city. It was oblong, so it was about twice the length that it was wide. Uh, it was about six to seven acres in terms of its area. And um, I tried, I did a little bit of math this week. This is a math question. If you know how something has six to seven acres of area, what's the circumference? If it's an oblong shape, then the answer is about one and a half to two kilometers of circumference. That matters because I was thinking about the army marching around uh, the city of Jericho. So it, it's not a big city. It was only six or seven acres, but it was a double-walled city, and it was generally thought to be impregnable. So, with all that out of the way, now that you know a little bit about Jericho today and Jericho 1300 BC, why don't we open our Bibles? So please open your apps, open your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. We'll read together. Or you can follow on the screen. Let's read together beginning in verse 1 and, and, and we'll pause along the way and I'll have some things to say. So, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. 
Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have the seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets. And the Ark of the Lord of the Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed behind the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So we had the Ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up the next morning and took the priests, and the pri- sorry, the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord, blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. And so they did this for six days. Let's pause here and take a look at the text a little bit closer. Verse 1 makes it clear that this was a military siege. Uh, The city had its gates shut tightly. They were barred securely. No one came in and no one came out. They knew Israel was encamped at Gilgal. And now to be fair, the city was designed for siege. It had two walls. And archaeologists have shown that they had all kinds of creative ways of storing grain and perishables. They had wells of water inside the city. They could go a long time with the doors shut. But verse 2 tells us that this was no ordinary siege. The Lord tells Joshua, See, I have delivered it into your hands. See, I have delivered this into your hands. The Lord is talking to Joshua in verse 2. Now this could be This could be Yahweh, or it could be the commander of the Lord's army, who we met back in chapter 5, which, who, by the way, could be Jesus, although there's some debate around that. But either way, it's fulfilling the promise. That's what I want you to see here today. He's already delivered it into their hands. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. And then verse 3 onward starts to unpack it. God gives specific instructions for how they should take the city. And I want you to see it as a picture of obedience. It's a picture of God saying, depend on me and wait. And I think it must have been difficult for tens of thousands of trained fighting men to march around a city day after day without talking, just listening to the priests blow the trumpets. And I'm thinking to myself, surely every evening when they came back to the camp, the men must have been talking to one another. And maybe one of them said, I can think of a better military strategy. Let's storm in by night and we'll jump the walls and we'll take the city, we'll create confusion and we'll scatter the people. Or maybe somebody else said, give me a rope. I'll climb the wall with a grapnel. I'll get inside, I'll open the gates and we'll all pile in. But that's not God's plan. God wants them to wait. He wants them to depend on him. 
And waiting can be hard. Um, and uh, perhaps you've prayed, and the answer to your prayers are sometimes yes, the answer to your prayers are sometimes no. Maybe sometimes the answers to your prayer are wait, um, not yet. And uh, together as a family of, uh, here at Calvary, um, I want to point to that poster on the wall, which Jeff mentioned in the announcements. We've been waiting quite a while with a vision to grow beyond this church. And uh, that, uh, that realization came home for me this week. Uh, let me tell you a story. We, we just bought a new computer in the Winger household, the family computer. And uh, we got rid of the old computer. We bought a new Dell. It's a smoking fast Intel um, 3.7 gigahertz i3 desktop computer. And we, we really like it. But in the process of buying a new computer, as you know, you've got to move everything from the old computer to the new computer. And we put it all onto a terabyte drive. And one of the biggest things for us to move was all the family pictures had to be moved off the computer. And so we spent one evening huddled around the computer looking at all the pictures. And you know how you can hit that slideshow button? That's too slow. So James, click, 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 click. And we, we were going through like a thousand different pictures, I think. But uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful opportunity to see lots of memories. But we paused at one particular moment on some kind of painful pictures that we took back in October of 2008. October of 2008, that was eight and a half years ago. They were pictures of a church on Lamarchant Avenue that we as a church were looking at. We, had, we were surveying different churches that we might buy, that we move, might move into. And this was a church next to St. Clair's Hospital. And we didn't buy it, but it was for sale. And now it's a Max Athletics uh, facility. But it was a reminder of how long we've been talking about growing out of this church. Eight and a half years ago, we had a building committee that was surveying the city. And, and, and we're still doing that. And, uh, and God willing, we will get there in the next year or so. But God has his reasons for making us wait. No doubt it's for his glory. Um, we know that all things work together for our good and for our profit. Um, and we know that we're being sanctified through that process. Um, certainly the people on the building committee are being sanctified <laughs> at this time. But, um, but why? Why did God ask the Israel to march around the city of Jericho for seven days? kind of unnecessary, you might think. You might say, oh, it's, it was tactical warfare or it was psychological warfare. Well, let me, let me offer two possible reasons why God might have asked Israel to march around the city for seven days. Number one, obedience. Uh, God didn't want them to forget who was in charge. He wanted them to depend on him. He wanted them to know that this was his plan, this was going to be his conquest, and that he was in charge, and that he was the main actor in the story. Number two, I think it's a story possibly about repentance. Um, like Rahab, maybe. Um, and I asked the question, I wonder if there was anybody else in the city who cried out for repentance. When you've got thousands of armed men marching, marching around the city, it, it might have been an opportunity for second and sober thought for other people like Rahab and to cry out uh, and to be saved. Let's continue with the text. Let's get to the seventh day, starting in verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. That would have been about 10, they would have had to hike like 10 kilometers or so to, to get around that city uh, seven times. On the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. 
Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all that are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not, be, not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel, Israel liable for, uh, to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Well, it's interesting that Joshua says, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. It's interesting because the walls hadn't fallen yet. He probably could have said, Shout, then wait for the walls to fall, and then say, Look, the Lord has given you the city. But remember what I said earlier in verse 2, God has already given the city to Israel. The men marched around the city, not so that God would act. They didn't march around the city so that God would act. No, God had already acted. God had already delivered the city. Back in chapter 2, you might remember Rahab, when she was talking with the spies, she said, a great fear has has fallen on us so that all who live in the city and in the country are melting with fear because of you. So God had delivered it. God was the main actor. Israel didn't earn this. Um, It was already given, and the gospel today is the same. We don't earn the favor of our Heavenly Father, and please don't fall in the trap of trying to earn your way into heaven. We are incapable by ourselves of earning a workspace justification uh, into the Father's heaven. Um, And we proclaim it every week, salvation by grace through faith alone. And this, this message is the same for, uh, for Jericho. God repeatedly showed Israel that he was the one that he wanted them to be dependent on. They weren't going to earn this themselves. Well, let's ask the question, how did it happen? How did the walls come tumbling down? And you might try to speculate, well, maybe it was an earthquake. Maybe it was a divine earthquake in which God just timed it and the walls crumbled. And, and that's possible. Or maybe if, you're, uh, if, if you like physics, maybe you said to yourself, well, maybe if the army was wrapped around the city and they were all shouting and the horns were blasting, maybe there was some perfect resonance, like the breaking of a wine glass, and, the, and that's how the walls fell. Well, I offer you this explanation. I say that it fell simply by faith. And I say that because that's what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10. Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 10, he says, by faith, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around it for seven days. It was their faith. Not a blind faith, it was a seeing faith. And don't forget, they had just crossed over the Jordan River. They had just seen their God miraculously part the water, and they crossed over. Let's move on. Verse 17 says the city was to be devoted to the Lord. Devoted to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, we'll see in later conquests as we work through the book of Joshua that Israel doesn't destroy everything uh, in all the cities that it, that, it, uh, that it fights against. And some of them it actually plunders. They take clothing and pottery and money. And, uh, but Jericho was not to be touched. Now, the precious metals, the gold, silver, bronze, and iron, God said, put that in the tabernacle for the future temple. That, that, that will keep. But everything else is destroyed. Nobody gets anything. 
And Francis Schaeffer has argued that Jericho, as a first city of their conquest, the first part of their increase should be their first fruits. And actually, we saw that in the video. Jericho was therefore a first sign or a sign of their first fruits. In the same way that you saw the story of Cain and Abel and Jericho. And uh, even Jesus was God's first fruits for us. Under Levitical law, in all things, the first fruits belong to God. And so Jericho was the first of the promised land. And it's a continuity of a theme that travels throughout the Old Testament. But in the, in the New Testament, under a new covenant, we read in James chapter 1 that as believers, James says, we are a kind of first fruits. Paul says in Romans 8, he says that we have received the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Not sure if you've ever thought of that before, but, but think of what, what you have from the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. There's more to come at the second coming of Jesus. This is just a foretaste. Let's keep working through the passage. When the trumpets, starting in verse 20, when the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. And so everyone charged straight in and took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So the walls collapsed. It doesn't say that there was a breach in the wall. It doesn't say that there was a small hole in the wall and they all poured through the, wall, through the hole. It says every man went straight in. And if you've got tens of thousands of men, they don't all stand in one spot because it's too many. <laughs> Most certainly, they had been marching around the city. And by the time the front part got around to the other part, uh, it was only six or seven acres. Surely, they surrounded the city. And when it says every man went straight in, I have to assume that all of the walls came down and every man went straight in. Verse 21 says that they put everything, everything living to the sword. Even the innocent sheep and donkeys. Big lip. <laughs> How do we make sense of this? At some level, it seems to violate our sensibilities a little bit. Is God condoning genocide? We need to be careful here, so let me offer a clear and thoughtful answer. Yes, it was the first fruits. It was to be devoted to God. But here's another thought. Part of my answer comes from the fact that Moses had commanded it. In Deuteronomy, back in chapter 20, Moses actually teaches Israel how they should conduct warfare. There was actual rules uh, about how to conduct war and, war, and Moses taught Israel about how to engage with a, with, a, with a distant city. So if you're dealing with Corner Brook, a distant city, and he teaches them, you negotiate. <laughs> but if it's, if it's part of the inheritance, if it's on the Avalon Peninsula and it's what I've given you, then, then listen to this. How, and Moses says, however, the cities of the nations of the Lord that the Lord is giving you as inheritance, do not leave anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you, otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. 
So that's part of the answer. Part of the answer is that God wanted the people of Israel to remain undefiled. And for that reason, they needed to put everything to the sword. The second part of my answer points to the actual character of God. And sometimes people think of God of the Old Testament as being a wrathful, angry God. And the God of the New Testament is a loving and merciful God. But let's be clear, it's the same God. Three in one, unchangeable, the one true living God now and forever. And he's holy and he's just. And that means he judges sinful and wicked behavior. And he has to. It's it's his character. We need to remember that Jericho was sinful. Uh, it was a broken, heathen culture. The sin of the people was the same of all of the inhabitants of Canaan. They worshipped idols. They were immoral. And the word says they did evil in the sight of God. And they had been doing this for generations and generations and generations. And so don't, don't misunderstand this. This is a story of a long-suffering, patient God who stayed his hand for hundreds of years. And that's the overwhelming picture that you'll see throughout the Old Testament. An, uh, a patient, long-suffering God who stays his hand and is gracious. Jeff Eastwood, a uh, pastor at uh, Grace Fellowship Church in PEI, where Pastor Steve and, and Debbie used to, used to minister, he has an illustration. It goes like this. Imagine for a moment that God tonight could lift you above St. John's in some divine way. And uh, Jeff, Jeff uses Charlottetown in his example. But, and you could look down over St. John's for a period of six hours and you could see every sin of every person and you could see in their heart and, and you would see it all over a period of six hours. And uh, our bet is that you wouldn't last about three seconds and you would start vomiting because you're not designed to handle that kind of information. But yet God is, and he's been seeing this um, in Jericho for generations and generations and generations, and he's been gracious, not judging. And it's, it's the same today. When you see sin in your heart and you see the sin in St. John's, sometimes don't you say to yourself, man, we, we don't deserve this. I'm surprised God hasn't wiped St. John's off the map. Sometimes if you say, uh, say hello to Bruce Halleck in the foyer on a Sunday morning, you say, Bruce, how you doing? And he says, better than I deserve. Let's keep working through the text. We're almost finished. Starting in, uh, let's pick up in verse 22. Joshua said to the men, to two men, he picked out the two men, the two men who had spied out the, out the city, the two that had met Rahab, he finds those two men and he sends them. He says, go into the house of the prostitute and bring her out and halt who belonged to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They, they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and bronze articles uh, um, in the treasury of the, uh, for the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she's living among the Israelites to this day. So Rahab and her entire family get saved and Joshua honors the oath. And rather amazingly, back in chapter 5, that's when we saw the two spies meet uh, Rahab. Or was that chapter 2? That was chapter 2. 
and uh, we saw a lady who had repented, who cried out for mercy, and she, though living in a culture and, 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 and worshiping gods that were diametrically opposed to our God, she, in a, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a context of polluted worship to other idols, she was able to affirm and say a true theological position on who the God of Israel was, and she repented and she passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The writer of Hebrews in our New Testament makes a tremendous statement. He actually parallels Rahab with the other heroes of the faith. The other heroes of the faith. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, we read, by faith, Abel, dot, 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 Enoch, dot, 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 Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And then in verse 31, it says, by faith, the prostitute, uh, Rahab, because she believed. And even James commends her in James chapter 2. He says, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And with one act of faith, she switched allegiances and she stepped from one nation into another. And that's the power of the gospel. When someone identifies their sin, they cry out for mercy. They repent, the Father offers forgiveness. Rahab's story is a dramatic one and it reveals a willingness to use the less than perfect, the outcast, what we might see as the unsuitable to accomplish God's holy purposes. But praise the Lord that Matthew didn't forget her, that he actually wrote her in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. So we'll never forget Rahab. Just a few more verses, I'm up to verse 26 now. And this whole story finishes this way. It says, at that time, Joshua pronounced his solemn oath. And he said, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord and the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Maybe you're thinking, well, Jericho did get rebuilt. <laughs> History does record that Jericho did get rebuilt. Um, Cheryl's been to Jericho. <laughs> Pastor Steve's been to Jericho. Jesus went to Jericho. Jericho did get rebuilt. So you say, well, when did it get rebuilt? And it happened about 700 years after the city was destroyed and sacked. Israel was in a much different place at that time. It had some ungodly leadership. There was a king named King Ahab, not a particularly good king, and he had a wicked wife named Jezebel. It was a bad combination, and under their leadership, there was a guy named Hiel, and he decided he was going to rebuild Jericho, and he did, and it's a tragic story. At the cost of his firstborn son, uh, Abiram, he set the foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son, Sejub, he built uh, the gates, and it's a tragic story. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 16. <laughs> Today, the ancient ruins are still there. Uh, it's about two miles northeast of the modern city center. Uh, if you uh, type in Google uh, Jericho cable car, they've got this really cool cable car that actually travels over top of the ruins. It's quite a modern uh, type thing. And uh, you can, I assume you can look down on the ruins. Cheryl, did you take the cable car? No, she's shaking her head. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll... Um, We'll make a trip together as a church and we'll go see Jericho. <coughs> so my, uh, some concluding remarks and then we'll be finished. Number one, let me say, God 
was the main actor in this story. Throw away everything you used to think about how it was the trumpets and it was Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. No, in fact, God was the main actor in this story. And uh, sometimes as adults, we need to reorient the way we think of these stories in the Old Testament. And even here at Calvary, the curriculum that we've purchased, the gospel project and the children's desiring God material that we use upstairs, we use it because it's God-centered. It puts God in the middle of the story. So when someone says, do you know the story of Jericho? Say, yeah, that's the, that's the story. That's the time when God, and that's how you finish the sentence, when God judged Jericho and used Israel as his instrument to accomplish his will. Let me give you another skill testing question. If someone says, do you know the story of Jonah? Yeah, you know the story of Jonah. <laughs> Can you finish the sentence if I say, yeah, that's the time God saves Nineveh, preserves Nineveh. It's an amazing story if you get the chance to go back and look at Jonah. He uses a man who has a really bad attitude, goes to Nineveh and teaches the worst sermon ever and the shortest sermon recorded in the Bible. It's only eight words and it leads to the largest revival recorded in the Bible. That's a story about, forget about the fish, it's a story about when God did something amazing through a weak guy with a bad attitude, with a bad sermon, and led to a massive revival. That's putting God in the middle of the story. So, and in your own life, please see God as the main actor in your life. That's my second point. God is the main actor in your story. And for Joshua and the people of Israel, um, they had an ark that they carried around, and, and I have uh, preached on this before, it represented three things. It represented the presence of God, the promises of God, and the protection of God. And we've since lost the ark. Unless you uh, watch the Indiana Jones movies, you now know that it's, it's locked up in Area 51. Uh, but, uh, but let me say, we don't need, an, we don't need the ark anymore. Um, God promised a new covenant and it was foretold in Jeremiah chapter 31. The Lord said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God is the main actor in your story. He indwells in you as a, as, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. You are indwelt with his Holy Spirit. God is the main actor in the story, and you are not the center of your universe. Praise the Lord. My final point, my final point, and then we'll be finished, is uh, just three points. Uh, Rahab's story offers us hope. The faith of a single woman. Rahab's story offers us hope. The faith of a single woman saved her entire family in the midst of a a wicked um, and sinful culture, she repents, she cries out, and she and her entire family get saved. And that's how God works. Still today, one person at a time, heart by heart, surgery by surgery, person by person, no one is unsuitable to accomplish his holy purposes. And like the Apostle Paul said, the grace that we receive is sufficient day by day, hour by hour so that his power may be made perfect through our weaknesses and that we might, we might then boast in those weaknesses. And Paul teaches this to the church in Corinth in his second letter, so that ultimately we might delight in hardships, delight in weaknesses for when we are weak, 
That's when we are strong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that as believers in you, you indwell us and we have direct access to you. You're a personal God, a loving God. Thank you, Lord, that you, you take such interest in us. You're not a distant God. Forgive us when we separate ourselves from you, when we run from you. But you always draw us back. Forgive us, Lord, for our sinful hearts. We run to you, Lord, here today. Please help us today and this week make you the main actor in our lives. Amen.